Thanks for joining us today. We love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So we encourage you to share your story with us at info at fellowshipgj.com. Also, if God is using this ministry to impact you, we want to encourage you to partner with us financially. You can do that online at fellowshipgj.com. Pick the giving option that works best for you and help us continue to bring the message of Christ to our community and beyond. Again, thanks for joining us and enjoy today's message. Well, with Easter just one week away, I know that pretty much every parent in the room has already put some effort into how are they going to snag the family picture at some point during the Easter celebration. Especially moms, we're like on the prowl with our ideas, kind of brainstorming how this is going to go down because at minimum, the boys will be clean. But there is actually a chance that the, the boys in the family, the young men in the family might be wearing some fancy clothes or even if we have our way, some type of coordinating outfit may be occurring between the family. And so our brains are already processing how we're going to get that picture. Well, just for your personal enjoyment this morning, I dug through the archives of Fellowship Church and I snagged a few Easter pictures from years gone by of the, of the teaching pastors of the church. So here is the Hoopers somewhere around the year 2000, everybody. Yep. So cute. And then just to show I'm playing fair, here is me and my brother when we were just little kids in 1980 getting ready for Easter. And um, I don't really know what's going on in this picture uh, for Pastor Tim, but it was there. I, I, don't, I don't really know about that. Um, we did find, manage to find one with his family also, not just his prize kitten. So there's Pastor Tim coordinating with his father. Beautiful, beautiful family memories being made by everyone on Easter. So... <laughs> <laughs> he's not here this weekend. That's my favorite part of this moment. He's going to find out in like a week or two when one of you let him know. But just to make this moment a little easier, this year in our worship center lobby, as well as in our 4640 lobby, we're going to have an Easter backdrop that's just for you to take pictures with your family. So if you get your kids to come to church or you have your adult children meet you, you can just stop by one of those picture backdrops and, and snap a picture of your family just to make one thing a little bit easier for you on Easter. But Easter is just one week away, and it's not just about Easter hams and Easter photos. There's a lot that we need to be thinking about as we zoom in on this last week before Jesus' death and resurrection. And I think it's most appropriate this morning to spend our time together studying and looking at what did Jesus do with the last seven days of his life? Because I believe he, he wasn't just messing around killing time. I believe he was very strategic in what he did with those last seven days. And if we take a look at that, it shows us a lot about who Jesus is and what he valued. And so what we'll find is that Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. And as he does that, he has to pass through the city of Jericho. So we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 18, verse 35. It says, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. And when he heard the noise of the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was going by. 
So he began shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, the people in front of him yelled at him. But he only shouted all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped, and he ordered that the man be brought to him. And as the man came near, Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. And Jesus said, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus, praising God. And all who saw it praised God too. Now in this action, we see what it was that Jesus truly valued. We see that Jesus is the one who makes time for everyone who calls upon him. And maybe for you, you thought, you know what, Jesus wouldn't have made time for me because of my disability. Jesus wouldn't have noticed me. I would have been in the back of the crowd. But here in Luke 18, we find that Jesus made time for the person that everyone else was passing by. Jesus said that who that person was mattered and was significant and valuable. And the truth is that for each one of us, Jesus cares. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, Jesus makes time for us when we call upon him. Even if we would view ourselves as, as the forgotten or the unnoticed or the unloved, Jesus says, no, 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 I have time for you. And Jesus showed this truth over and over again in just even Luke 18, this text that we're looking at. He stops to bless the children in this same chapter. He stops to heal this blind man. He stops to answer the question of the misdirected rich man. He stops to, to get Zacchaeus and call him down from the tree. Even though he's a notorious sinner and tax collector and thief, Jesus says, no, that doesn't matter. I have time for everyone who calls upon me. And I just want to emphasize this morning as we're looking at what does Jesus really value, we recognize that Jesus values us. Jesus has time for us. And if you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, he will hear you. So Jesus is continuing his journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he's going to Jerusalem because it is the time for the annual Passover celebration. And for any devout Jew, this is a very big deal. It's been going on for thousands of years, ever since the time of their captivity in Egypt. When an angel of the Lord came and said, put the blood of an innocent lamb on your doorframe, and the angel of death will pass over you and your household. And so this has been symbolized for thousands of years by the Jewish people, and people from all over the nation of Israel would travel to Jerusalem because that was what was instructed in the law. They would come to the holy city to celebrate. Now Jesus, at this time, he, he is a Jewish rabbi, ultimately, and so he is coming to celebrate Passover. And so he's walking on the road with tens of thousands of other Jewish travelers traveling to Jerusalem. And there's Jesus and his disciples and likely that formerly blind guy kind of in the throng of people as well. And they're literally traveling down this very narrow road. In fact, we found uh, a picture of it that lets us kind of see that this road is maybe two feet wide at some places with rocky cliffs in some cases on both sides. And the people are kind of progressing up this road by the thousands and thousands of persons. It's like rush hour traffic 
on foot. And here Jesus is on this road and he's coming up from Jericho. He's heading towards Jerusalem. And to do so, he has to pass through the town of Bethany. Now, Bethany is just a little bit outside of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus has been there many times. In fact, two of his close friends, Mary and Martha, live there in Bethany with their brother Lazarus. And Jesus has been known to stay at their house and to teach from their house. And when he arrives in the city, he's greeted by the news that Lazarus, his close friend, has died. And Mary and Martha are upset, they're weeping, and they're kind of a little bit ticked at Jesus. Like, Jesus, where, where were you? Why weren't you here to help us in our time of need? Why, why didn't you even care? And so they're kind of like pouring out the guilt trip on Jesus. And Jesus, through his tears, makes his way to the tomb where Lazarus has now been buried for four days. So Jesus was late, like really late for healing Lazarus. And he, and he goes to the grave and he calls to Lazarus and he sort of says, you're not actually dead anymore. Get up. You're undead. Come on out. And everybody's looking at Jesus like, what's going on? And then, and then this zombie-like guy wrapped in bedclothes sort of starts coming out and all the teenagers are trying to get their selfie with Lazarus and it's going up on Instagram because this is a big deal and there are hundreds of people that were literally right there taking the same shortcut through the town of Bethany on their way to Passover in Jerusalem that saw it go down and, and the word is now spreading through the crowds of people as they make their way up to the holy city. The word of Lazarus being raised from the dead. The word of the blind man being healed. The stories are being told. And, and Lazarus is like, yeah, it's true. Like, look at my bedclothes, man. I was dead just like a few minutes ago. And the story and the atmosphere is becoming electric. And this lets us know that Jesus is the one who has the ability to raise the dead. Jesus' power doesn't come because he has an army to back him up. It's not because he's a political leader, as many people hoped that he would be. Jesus is a spiritual leader, a spiritual savior, and his power comes from his identity as the very son of God. And so Jesus has the ability and the desire to raise the dead, not just 2,000 years ago, but, but right now in our own lives. Jesus has the ability to raise those dreams that we thought were dead. Maybe it felt like our future was dead and nothing was ever going to become what we thought it could have been. Maybe you feel like your ability to, to conceive children is dead or your marriage relationship is dead or your career is dead or your health is dead or maybe today your hope is dead. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just raise things from the dead. He is resurrection. He is life. And so any dead thing that you and I have in our lives, if we just invite Jesus to touch that which was dead, it cannot help but live. Now he's leaving the town of Bethany. The crowds have grown and he's headed toward the Mount of Olives. And amongst the crowds, of course, the blind man, probably Lazarus, and they're all making their way, probably Mary and Martha telling and retelling the story. And Jesus stops there and we'll pick up the story in Luke 19. He came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And he sent two disciples ahead. He said, go to the village over there, he told them. And as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So essentially, Jesus sends two disciples to go commit grand theft donkey. And they bring this donkey back, and they put their coats over the donkey, and Jesus gets up on the donkey, and and he starts to ride up this last ascent over the Mount of Olives. And as he comes up over the top of the Mount of Olives, this is the first time that the temple where the Jewish people worship comes into view. And the temple itself is a beautiful structure, one of the most impressive in in that era that was even built. It was built by Herod just a few hundred years before, and it was truly magnificent. And we have a picture of the temple here that you can kind of see. This whole rectangular structure is the temple. And as you're coming up over the Mount of Olives, that's the view you would have of the temple for the first time. It's like the crown jewel, the prized possession of the Jewish people. And Jesus has seen it from atop this donkey. The thousands of people cresting the mount at the same time are kind of seeing this absolutely gorgeous view. Now next to the temple, right next to the temple. In fact, you will see the fortress of Antonia. Now that fortress is the fortress that the Roman Empire built. And it was an affront. It was just disdained by the Jewish people touching their temple right there. And that's where the Roman guard stood guard. There was normally 600 soldiers stationed at any given time at the fortress of Antonia. But at Passover, it would be doubled that. So 1,200 guard would be staying at the fortress of Antonia, and their sole job was to make sure that there was no Jewish revolt, no Jewish rebellion of any kind that would be coming, and that was what they did. So Jesus is coming up over the Mount of Olives. He sees the temple in all of its splendor right before him, and there's the joy of the Jewish celebration as it's happening, and at the same time, there's the distaste for the Roman oppression that's in the shadow of the very temple that represented the, 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 the presence of God. And so Jesus sees this and he feels this energy. But let's take a look at the day. At the day Jesus chose to enter into Jerusalem, five days before Passover, this day in our generation, we know that it's called Palm Sunday. But back in the day, um, when Jesus was traveling, it wasn't Palm Sunday. It was called Lamb Selection Now, Lamb Selection Day was basically part of the Passover celebration took place five days before. And what would happen is all of the Jewish families would go and they would select their lamb for the sacrifice. And it was a happy occasion to take one's children to the farm or the bartering area and look around and try to choose the lamb that would take away the sins of your family. And people would be excited. It's like going to get a Christmas tree in our generation. But it always took place on the same day. So you have about 150,000 people trying to pick out their lamb. And children are excited and they're running around like, I choose lammy. And the lamb's like, yay, I'm adopted. No, you're not. Right? So all this is kind of unfolding, and people are, are just anticipating this excitement. And it's a little bit chaotic going on. And Jesus decides on Lamb Selection Day to make his appearance into the city of Jerusalem. 
Do you remember what John the Baptist said as he was baptizing Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is a name used to describe Jesus. And so as Jesus is riding on his donkey down into the city of Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day, he's making a statement. He's saying, here I am. I am the Lamb of God. I am here to take away the sins of the world. Who will choose me this Lamb Selection Day as the sacrifice for their sins and the sins of their family? Because truth number three is that Jesus is the one who offers himself for the sins of the whole world. Jesus offers himself. And this is so mind-blowing because he didn't have to. He could have staffed it out to an angel. He could have decided to change the rules of how it all worked. He could have just wiped out Adam and Eve when they messed up and just sort of started over with Steve and Bonnie. I mean, like all kinds of things could have went down. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. I will go. I will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The truth is that we have all sinned. The Bible says that the cost of sin is spiritual death. It doesn't mean physical death. It means eternal death, eternal separation from all that is good and all that is God. Romans 3 says, for everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And it's the power of the blood of Jesus that saves us. But it doesn't just initially saves us, it also continues to announce and invite us into this deep and lasting and real friendship with God. Romans chapter 5 highlights this, beginning in verse 9, it says, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God has been restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, so now we can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus has made us friends of God. Guys, this is like a mind-blowing truth that's being revealed in these verses, letting us know that it's not about fulfilling a religious obligation, but it is a relationship with God that's being afforded to us because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because of everything that this week in history represents. Luke 19, picking up the story, when Jesus reached the place on the road and started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all of the miracles that they had seen. So they began to shout and sing. So apparently they were not singing and shouting before that moment. And I kind of wonder why. 
Like, Lazarus is running around, healthy and alive, four days out the grave, and, and, and the blind guy's not blind anymore, and everybody's hearing all these stories, and they're seeing the temple. And, and, but, but why aren't they celebrating? Why aren't they already singing? Well, it has to do with that fortress of Antonio. It has to do with those thousands of Roman soldiers and guards just waiting for any sign of revolt or rebellion from the Jewish people. And if they got a, just a sniff that a revolt was coming, they would rush out of the fortress and wipe it out. They had done it before on Passover week. And so the crowd had been quiet up to this point because they knew it was a high-stakes game that was going on. But something must have happened because all of a sudden it says they began to shout and sing like they couldn't contain it anymore. And probably it was a mixture of all those miracles, but they came around the corner, they see the temple, and they see all of Israel camped around the temple. Because Jerusalem in this day would have about 50,000 population. But on Passover, it would swell to 150,000 people living in the city. Well, there's no room for these people, so they, they would be like country jamming it without the beer. And there would just be like tents everywhere, campers backed up. I mean, people just kind of staking off their turf, lawn chairs set out, like the whole area. So they're seeing the temple in the shadow of the fortress of Antonio, and then all of Israel camped all around. And it was powerful, and it was beautiful. And all of a sudden, they just couldn't contain it anymore. And in spite of the fact that the soldiers might crush them like praise, just leapt forth from their mouths. Now, kings had made triumphal entries before. Like throughout Jerusalem and Israel's history, whenever the kings would go to battle, they would go and they would conquer and they would come back. They would come back down this road. It was like the only, one of the only entrances at the time into the city of Jerusalem. And kings would get their war horse, right? And it would all be like polished up and waxed up and its mane combed and they'd be ready to go. And they'd come down and they'd have their servants running with banners declaring how many they had, they had slaughtered of the enemy in their war and the king would come down making this procession of sorts and, and they expected that. That was life in the kingdom. But then you have Jesus and, and he's coming down and they look up to see their king and they see him on a donkey, not a war horse. And it's a little like disheartening. It's like this brave heart moment, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus, instead of this war horse, is, is on the donkey. And, and all the people are like, this doesn't make sense. This isn't what it was supposed to be. This isn't what we were expecting. We were, we were expecting something awesome. What, did, did Enterprise just have the, have the Prius left when he went to rent the horse? I mean, just only the donkey was available. It just, it didn't fit with their brave heart image of what the kingdom should be like, the kingdom of God's people. And so they were disheartened. It would be like Oscar night, and Brad Pitt rolls up behind all these stretch limos and, and pimped out SUVs, and then there's Brad, Schwinn, or Brad Pitt on a Schwinn bicycle ringing his bell, just kind of pedaling up. And we'd all be like, what? That, that's not right. That doesn't, that doesn't jive with the, with the whole scene. And, and Jesus on the donkey was just so out of place, but it said something. They expected a lion of war. But instead, he came as a lamb of God. 
They expect a war horse, but here he is on a donkey. And Jesus could be saying, I'm not the type of king that you think I am. My kingdom is different from any other kingdom of, of this world. And so even still, even with the anticlimactic donkey and even not what they expected, even still, they're going to worship Jesus nonetheless. John chapter 12 records it best. It says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This is significant because... They're declaring that Jesus is king over Israel, not Rome and not Caesar. With the fortress of Antonio looming in the background, and they're waving palm branches around as they do it. Now, to us in our generation, we're thinking, oh, how resourceful of them. This is very practical. There's probably palm trees on the road, and they grabbed those because it was what was available, and they went to sort of, you know, fan the king or something. No, 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 no. It says they brought the palm branches, right? So this was deliberate, and palm branches in Israel was a symbol of freedom and independence. A few hundred years later, or earlier, when Israel was a free nation, they printed palm branches on their coins, it would be like to us in Amer Americans, like a, like a bald eagle. They intentionally were saying, this is our king. We, they were declaring, we're a free nation. We're waving our palm branches. We're declaring our freedom over Rome, over those Roman soldiers that could rush at us at any moment. They were trying to say something, and everyone in that generation knew it. Now, of course, there were Pharisees in the crowd, religious Jews in the crowd. And they knew what was being done. They knew what the palm branches meant. They knew what Hosanna meant, save us now. They knew they were declaring Jesus as the king. And so the Pharisees ran up to Jesus in a total panic. And, and they said, verse 39, they said, but some Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like this. Now, Jesus responds to their request made out of fear and desire to control, and he says this in verse 40. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into praise. You see, these Pharisees, they knew what would happen if the Roman guard saw the palm branches and heard the King Jesus' statements. They knew what would go down, and they were afraid. But Jesus says, you want me to shut them up? Fine, but then get ready for all of creation to burst into praise over the one true king of Israel. Jesus is saying something specific. He's saying we, humanity, is created to recognize our creator. We're created to recognize and acknowledge Jesus for the king that he is. All throughout scripture, the Bible says, the wind and the waves and the rocks, that all of creation can recognize that God is their creator. And if our lives don't shout out in praise, if our lives don't shout out in love and adoration to our God, then we are missing it. Because the fourth truth reminds us that Jesus is the one who is worthy of all of our worship. We serve a king who is worthy of worship. Jesus forsook heavenly places 
took on time from eternity, clothed himself in humanity, stepped into the battleground of temptation. And Jesus laid down his very life in the most gruesome of ways because he could not stand the thoughts of eternity without us. And King Jesus deserves the worship of our lives lived out for his glory. Now, it's easy in our day and age to show up in seven days on Easter Sunday in our fancy clothes with our coordinating and thinking about the ham that's preset in the oven. And to be kind of happy and excited because Jesus rose from the dead and the uncomfortable, bloody mess that historically occurred this week in history is behind us. But this year I challenge us all to do something different. Instead of waking up next Sunday and being like, oh, looky here, good. Jesus rose from the dead. Let's have ham and fancy clothes. I challenge us to put some thought into this final countdown. Put some thought into the timeline of the next seven days because Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king. And in that seven days, he was gonna rise from the dead, having been murdered, executed really, having been crucified, having been beaten and bloodied for the remission of our sins, having been betrayed. He knew, Jesus knew the final countdown. Jesus knew the next seven days and what they would hold. And he said, I am going to Jerusalem anyways. His disciples tried to talk him out of it. They're like, don't go. Just a few weeks ago, they were trying to kill you. And Jesus was like, I'm going. Because he knew it was the purpose for which he was born. And guys, it's so easy to just cruise through another work week and the weekend arrives and wake up on Easter and be happy and celebratory, and we should. But I submit to you that it matters that we think through the process of what Jesus endured on our behalf this week. Nobody loves to watch it, but we should. Get a hold of the passion of Christ and watch it again. I know it makes you sick to your stomach. I know no one enjoys it, but guess what? It's part of the miracle of the resurrection. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness for our sins. Without him taking our place, there is no reconciliation between mankind and God. It's part of the miracle. It's part of resurrection day. It's all part of the process. And so this week, talk with your children. Talk with your spouse. Come together as a family. Read the story of his betrayal, his, his crucifixion, and his death. And then come on Sunday, inviting the whole family to celebrate with some meaning behind what it is we are celebrating. Jesus knew what the next seven days would hold. And so as a result, he decided that he was going to gather his disciples in an upper room before the betrayal, before the arrests, before the beatings. And he was gonna give them a beautiful symbol to be celebrated and remembered throughout history. And in that day, it was the Passover meal and all the components 
We're symbolic, but in our generation, we celebrate it to remember Jesus' death and resurrection. The Last Supper took place on Thursday as Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room. And the Bible says that he took a loaf of bread. And he said, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. And when he said that, he literally meant like the next day. He was going to allow his body, the body of the Son of God, to be broken for the people of God. And then he took the cup. And guys, all of this symbol is so precious to us. And, I, and we want, as a church family, we want this week to celebrate communion and to remember the symbolism before we go into Easter Sunday. So the ushers are getting in a position, and we're going to invite the church family to come forward and to pick up an elements of communion of the bread, of the wine, and to return to their seat. And in a moment, we're going to partake of the elements together. It's recorded in Holy Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me take and eat of the bread together. Thank you, Jesus, for your body, that you allowed yourself to be a substitute in our place. We choose you. You are the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. And thank you. Thank you for taking away our sins. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. We're so grateful that you spilt it, that you thought of us as you did. We love you, Jesus. Let's partake of the juice together. Jesus, this sacrifice that you made on our behalf, God, it's changed everything for each one of us and we are eternally grateful that you would love us so much that while we were still enemies of God that you came and sought us out to restore right relationship between us and you Jesus your love for us is so great your mercies are new every morning God we are in awe of you we love you we worship you, Jesus, with our whole heart, soul, minds, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray.
Thanks for listening to this week's message at Fellowship Church. If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. The Bible says in the book of Romans, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9. You can do that right now. I just want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe that you are Lord, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again. And God, I thank you for that. I ask you now to be my Savior, to guide my life, and to give me a home forever in heaven. And God, I ask you this, in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name, amen. If you just prayed this prayer for the first time, or if you need prayer, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us at 970-245-PRAY or at prayer at fellowshipgj.com. Thanks again. We hope to see you next week.